With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing, Nathan? Good. It's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah. Um, Now, we're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. As Nathan mentioned just a few seconds ago, it has been a little while since we've last recorded. Uh, We had a little bit of a hiatus there, but I think we're, we're back and ready to get back into the swing of things of recording podcast episodes. And so we'll be releasing, hopefully getting back to a schedule of releasing uh, one a week. And so hopefully this will be the, the start of uh, uh, of a new set of uh, consistent releases. Okay, so basically today what we're going to be talking about are, we're, we're going to be talking about arguments which are sort of like personhood arguments, but they don't necessarily rely on any sort of metaphysics about personhood. We're just going to be talking about gradualist arguments. And what a gradualist argument is, is basically if you're going to ground someone's humanity or their rights in some sort of property that the person can possess, well, if that property is something that comes in degrees, then your rights or the amount of rights that you have or your moral status would also come in degrees. And so what the gradualist argument basically says is because our development comes on gradually, also our personhood or our rights, come on gradually. And so the less developed you are, the less rights you have against someone who is more developed. And so that's why the fetus would have less rights than the woman, because the woman is a fully developed human being. The fetus is still developing. And so it has less rights than the pregnant woman does. And they would also say that this also explains why we have this intuition that a late-term abortion is worse than an early-term abortion because in the late term, the fetus is more developed. It seems like it it takes a stronger justification to be able to kill it. Yeah. uh, Personally, I think that the gradualist argument is one of the strongest 
philosophical arguments about the humanity and personhood of the unborn. Um, mm. A way a gradualist argument might be said on the street, and then we'll get into the more philosophical ones in just a moment. But on the street, a gradualist argument might sound something like, well, look, we have rights that we gain as we get older. So say a young male um, at five years old, he doesn't have the right to drive, whereas when he turns 16, um, he has the right to go out and pursue a driver's license. And then at 18, the right to vote. At 21, maybe the right to smoke tobacco or to drink alcohol. And at 18, also the right to join the military. And so a gradualist would say that the severity of killing increases as we get older and we have more of these rights. So say killing a, a newborn would be more severe and seems much more intuitively wrong than say killing a six week embryo. Yeah. And these sorts of, of arguments are arguments that I hear fairly regularly. I'm pretty sure I've written about them in, in various blog articles or something, but these kinds of arguments just kind of rely on a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of rights. And they tend to confuse natural rights, which all human beings have by virtue of the kind of thing that you are, with legal rights, which are rights that the government bestows upon you and usually come about based on your maturity, essentially. And of course, even that's sort of arbitrary, because by 18, people have a legal right to vote. Well, you know, not everyone is really mature enough or knowledgeable enough to vote by 18, but some kids might be knowledgeable and mature enough to vote by 16. So even then, it's still kind of an arbitrary limit that we place on these kinds of rights. Yeah, and then something else, as Chris Kayser points out uh, in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, he says that a lot of these rights that we talk about, say the right to vote or the right to drive a vehicle or, the, say, even the, the right to drink alcohol, a lot of them have obligations with it that are also a reflection of maturity. So say the right to drive a motor vehicle. Um, at age 16, it is assumed that young adults have the maturity necessary to understand their decisions behind the wheel, say that speeding could put other lives in danger or um, that operating the vehicle safely, reckless driving, cutting people off on the freeway is a dangerous idea that could put other people in danger. Whereas say a six-year-old or an eight-year-old may not even have the mental capacities necessary to have a concept of morality. Um, and so they need to learn that as they grow up. That's why we deny a right to drive to six-year-olds, but a granted to 16-year-olds. And then even then, a 16-year-old who doesn't have that sort of maturity will have their driver's license taken away. So in a sense, it's e that legal right ends up becoming a bit of a privilege based on whether they have an understanding of what their actions will result in. Same thing with voting and same thing with other licensing issues. Um, but as Kayser points out, the right to life is not like that. The right to life has no real obligations that go along with it. Right. Mm. Well, yeah, as, as I think about it, I'm not sure I would completely 100% agree with Kayser's statement there, because it, it seems like even with natural rights, we do have duties. Uh, that's why we have rights, because with rights come duties, in that if I expect my right to life to be respected, I am obligated then to respect the right to life of other people. And that's one of the reasons why it's permissible for the government to put a, a murderer to death, is because he did not meet his obligation to respect the right to life of other people. And so I, I think right. I might might disagree a little bit with with Kayser there, unless unless maybe he was meaning something different. I think he might have been. I mean, it might just, it might just be my reading of it, and I'm a little rusty because haven't recorded a podcast in a year and a half. Um, something he does say though, especially in regards to bodily autonomy arguments, is that 
one reason why, because for example, getting into bodily autonomy arguments, it is sometimes assumed the unborn uh, should have had the woman's consent. It's an argument that's more assumed than it is uh, directly stated by bodily autonomy arguments. But he says that the unborn, just like a newborn, um, has no real obligations because they have no concept of others. Um, and so in that case, or say somebody who's comatose, they have the, the right to life, even though they have no way of fulfilling obligations. Like, for example, somebody who's medically comatose, they can't, say, respect the right to life of others or the right to privacy of others because they're comatose, but they still undeniably have yeah. a right to life. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that could be amended then to say that it's it's a right that we have regardless of whether or not we've reached the maturity to be able to to respect any sorts of moral obligations that we might have because right. even even while we're newborns we have we still have a right to life it's still wrong to kill us even though we don't have we haven't reached the intellectual maturity yet to recognize that it's wrong to kill other people or put them in danger correct but as clinton said yeah. it, having a right to life also does bring with it the obligation especially if you know that there are others uh just because you have a right to life it doesn't mean you have the right to take that that right away from others, you still have to respect them as other human individuals. And they have a right to life as well. So there right, are a couple right. ways, uh, as me and Clinton are uh, showing with our discussion, there are a couple ways that it could be approached. Um, and I think still lead to, um, that doesn't diminish the fact that there is a right to life of individuals. Yeah, so that's an argument you'll probably hear fairly often at the street level. But when it comes to philosophers, they make, uh, a little bit more of a sophisticated argument. There are basically three different categories of what we might call functionalist arguments. Functionalist arguments being the arguments that someone might ground in some sort of function that you can perform, such as your consciousness or your self-awareness or, or things like that. The first category would be gradualism. That's when you place your development of rights in uh, a property that we all have that come in degrees. And so the less of that property you have, the less rights or moral status you have as an individual. The second category would be what we might call threshold arguments. And these are, you place the, you place the development of rights in a category that comes in degrees, but rather than saying, if you have less of it, you have less rights or moral status. And if you have more of it, you have more rights or moral status. They would say that there's a certain threshold that you have to pass in order to be considered a person or to have uh, rights and human dignity. And so they would say that even though it's grounded in something that comes in degrees, there's a certain threshold that you have to be able to pass. So your rights don't come in degrees, but once you pass that threshold, then you have those rights. And anyone who hasn't passed that threshold doesn't have those rights. And then the third category of functionalist arguments might be what we would call ranged arguments. And this is actually a type of argument that I first learned when reading through Kate Greasley's 2016 book, Arguments About Abortion. Kate Greasley would argue that personhood is something that comes in degrees because we develop from a single-celled embryo to a, a fetus and to a newborn. So our, our development is gradual. And so our personhood then is also gradual. And she, and she believes that our personhood probably is not established in reality until sometime after birth. But that birth is an acceptable cutoff point, not because it's any sort of threshold that one can cross. And so it's not, so it's not the sort of argument that's susceptible to these caricatures 
that pro-life people sometimes make about the, you know, the quote, magic birth canal, end quote, about birth being that cutoff line. Greasley actually makes a more sophisticated argument about birth being that cutoff point, and that she would say that your personhood isn't established in reality at birth. It probably happens sometime after birth, but birth is an acceptable cutoff point because anyone who's been born falls within the acceptable range of persons. And so that would be a third type of a third category of functionalist arguments, which we would call ranged arguments. And so we'll we'll talk about threshold and ranged arguments sometime down the road here. Today we just kind of want to focus specifically on gradualist arguments. Probably one of the most well-known philosophers who makes a gradualist argument would be Wayne Sumner, and he places human development in your sentience. And now, of course, sentience is not what a lot of people tend to think of it as something into consciousness and self-awareness. And I actually blame science fiction for this misunderstanding of sentience because whenever they encounter a new, you know, like whenever I'm like Star Trek or some science fiction show, they always encounter a life form they never encountered before. And it's a, it's an alien species that they're not familiar with. They would say that it's one that they have to treat with dignity and respect because it's a sentient life form. And what they actually mean is something akin to consciousness or self-awareness. They're not saying that it's a life form that can feel pain, and so therefore we're obligated to treat it with respect. They sometimes use intelligent life form as uh, interchangeable with sentient life form. And so I, I kind of blame science fiction for this misunderstanding. But sentience, especially in the way that Wayne Sumner uses it, is not intelligence or self-awareness or anything like that. It's regarding your capacity to suffer. Sentience is basically the capacity to experience feelings, and especially the, the feeling of pain. And so if you're sentient, that means that you can feel pain. So Sumner would argue that it's not what we are or any sort of real function that we can perform, like self-awareness or consciousness or having desires or these kinds of things, which ground our, our moral status, but it's whether or not you can suffer. That's the important issue. And so if you can suffer, that means that we have an obligation not to harm you. So, of course, Sumner would say that this is why it's wrong to, to harm animals, uh, for example, because they can suffer. And so we should consider them probably on par with our moral status because of, of how they can suffer. And yet embryos and fetuses cannot suffer, or at least not in the same way that, that we can. That's why it's not wrong to kill an embryo early on in the pregnancy, but as the fetus, as it develops, does start to develop the capacity to feel pain, then it becomes harder to justify an abortion later in the pregnancy. And so he would say that this also explains our intuition of why a late-term abortion is harder to justify than an early-term abortion, and why most pro even pro-choice people would say that a late-term abortion uh, should probably be illegal, whereas an early-term abortion should be legal. This is a specifically gradualist argument because he places it in our sentience as the more sentient you become, the more moral status you have. So basically if we're going to, if, if we encounter someone like Sumner who says that, uh, that our sentience is what grounds our personhood or our moral status at least. Well, this of course is subject to certain counterexamples. Well, what about people? And there have been people like this. What about people who have a congenital inability to feel pain? Well, it seems like if your capacity to feel pain is what's important, your ability to suffer, then it seems like killing someone with the congenital inability to feel pain would be permissible. Because of that, it seems like if we're going to accept sentience as the criterion for what grounds moral status, it seems hmm. like this would be a bad way to ground it because then we could justify killing certain people who, uh, through no fault of their own, are, in, in a, are unable to feel pain. 
And it also seems to indicate that as long as we can kill someone painlessly, we're then permitted to kill them as well. Because if you can't suffer, then you have no moral status. Well, if you can kill someone without making them suffer for it, then it seems like that would be uh, more permissible than just killing someone outright. Grounding your moral status in gradualism is uh, leaves yourself open to certain counterexamples and that there would be some types of people that it would not be wrong to kill because of that because they can't suffer. I think that that leads to absurdities, and so we can reject gradualism just based on, on that alone. But, of course, there's also the more fundamental reason in that your form precedes your, your function. The only reason that we can suffer in the first place is because we're human beings and we develop as human beings. So more fundamentally, our human nature is what we have that grounds our sentience. And so if you're going to place one's moral status in one's sentience, well, you're not going deep enough to show exactly why it is that they're, that they're sentient. And so the fact that they're human is an even more fundamental reason for their sentience. Their sentience is actually grounded in their human nature. You're basically ignoring the fact that they have this human nature and grounding it instead in sentience, which is an accidental feature of a person. You know, if, if I suddenly uh, lost the ability to feel anything in my hand, I would not cease to be the, the type of thing that I was before, or I would not cease to exist, I would not cease to be me, because my capacity for sentience is an accidental feature of myself and not an essential feature of myself, one that would make me something different if I were to lose that feature. So the counterexamples and uh, the fact that people who make this kind of argument fail to understand the more fundamental reason for our sentience and, and you know sort of confuse that as an essential part of who I am shows that we can reject the sentience criterion out of hand. Now, a second argument that I've heard about, and I don't remember where I heard this from, because I, I don't know if I've actually read anything by Daniel Callahan. I'm familiar with Callahan. I know he's a, a pro-choice philosopher. In fact, I know that Daniel Callahan is married to a woman named Sidney Callahan, who is actually a pro-life philosopher, and I believe she's Catholic too. Daniel may be <laughs> Catholic, I think. So Daniel is pro-choice. His wife, Sydney is pro-life. And somehow they've made a marriage work despite the fact that, they're, that they come to different conclusions on the abortion issue. And they both write coming to different conclusions on the abortion issue. So uh, more power to them. I was made aware of an argument by Daniel Callahan based on the safety of the woman. And I'm not sure, like I said, where this argument comes from. It was something I read in a book. And for the life of me, I couldn't remember what book I'd read this in. So uh, unfortunately, I couldn't source it to um, go and, and read and any deeper on this, but I still wanted to kind of cover it because it still fits under our under our umbrella of gradualist arguments. And even if Callahan hasn't specifically made this argument, it's another one that we hear pretty often. And it's just based on the safety of the woman. And the argument basically goes, the moral status of the fetus is not the only consideration when we talk about abortion. How safe the abortion procedure is for the woman should also be a consideration, and that early abortion is safer than later abortion, and so early abortion should be unrestricted, whereas late abortion is more dangerous, and so it should be more restricted than early abortion. Callahan's consideration then uh, would be how safe the procedure is for the woman, and that the safer the abortion procedure is, the more legal it should be. So early abortion is very safe for the woman, Callahan would argue, so it should be unrestricted. And then late abortion is more dangerous for the woman, and so it should be more restricted. Something I would add to that, and I'm, I know Callahan's probably the, – the arguments about personhood are going to be more relevant here. But if we just were to look at it, the ethics of abortion based on the safety of the procedure, um, we would have to conclude because a later-term abortion could become safer in the near future uh, just with advances in medical technology. And so 
if safety alone is our threshold for legality, it would follow that there would be nothing wrong with a late-term abortion in the near future. In fact, infanticide is extremely safe for women, but we don't accept that as something that should be legal merely based on safety. So not to confuse this, I mean, because it is possible to get confused about this and say, well, Callahan's argument is meaningless because of the safety issue. Well, if you bring in the personhood issue, it would make his argument a lot stronger. Um, like the person, personhood argument that Clinton just talked about. So, yeah, I think that's a, a great point, actually, because, yeah, there are all sorts of things that would be safe for us to perform, but would obviously not be morally permissible. So if it were to be shown that the fetus has moral status, especially because pro-life people argue that fetuses do have moral status, well, if the fetus has moral status, then we can't just justify abortion based on the safety of the woman. We'd have to take the, the moral status of the fetus into consideration. So, yeah, so I think that's a, a great point there. This is also one reason why I take issue with a lot of pro-lifers who argue about the safety of abortion. And there are some really good books that talk about this. The Cost of Choice by Erica Bacciotti. She has essays from uh, female medical professionals who look at issues like the breast cancer link or like the mental illness link or like. Uh, um, one problem I have with that, though, is the argument like Daniel Callahan is if abortion was completely safe, uh, then where do we go now? I don't think it's altogether a mistaken way to argue that, but I don't think it should be the primary argument that pro-lifers rely upon is that, oh, abortion clinics are unsafe or, oh, they aren't really checked up upon. Well, yeah, I could agree with that and still conceivably be pro-choice. And Daniel Callahan kind of shows that with his argument. Yeah, so those are basically the most common of the gradualist arguments that you'll encounter. We talked about uh, arguments at the street level from rights that we gain rights as we gain maturity. We talked about the argument from Wayne Sumner and certain other philosophers that sentience is what grounds our human value. And then we talked about the safety of the woman consideration. And of course, we, we rejected all of those out of hand because it not, not only are they, uh, do they make some fundamental errors in reasoning, such as confusing the concept of legal rights with natural rights, but they're also open to certain counterexamples. And they don't really get to the heart of what it is that makes us who we are. It's not our sentience, but our underlying human value, our, our underlying human nature, rather. So I'd like to, to thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Nathan, for joining me. It's uh, nice to be back, and I look forward to recording more more episodes of the, of the podcast here. All right. Uh, great to be with you again, Clinton. Yeah, if you found this information helpful, we ask that you just share it around. You can rate and review us on, uh, on iTunes or on uh, – I think you can – well, you can review us on Blog Talk Radio. I don't know if there's a rating system, but definitely on iTunes, you can rate and review us and share this around if you found it helpful and enlightening. Now, of course, this is a weekly podcast, uh, give or take. We've had a little bit of a hiatus, but uh, hopefully we're going to get back on uh, on doing a, a weekly podcast now with this. And it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other uh, work that I do in the pro-life movement. As uh, Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working to kill unborn babies than there are people working to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you would like to donate to the podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in the notes section as well. And, uh, of course, donations are tax deductible. So once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.